Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to episode eight of the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. I'm your host today, Ryan Ray, as Josh Shelton. Um, love him or hate him, he's at the beach this week, so we're stuck with me. Um, as promised, short episode this week, we have Ryan Sitton, the Texas Railroad Commissioner. I sat down from my other podcast, the Global Energy Leaders Podcast, and interviewed him the other day. We're going to play that for you here today, and we'll be back to our normal program next week. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton. Well, Ryan, we've had on a lot of big-name guests, but this is truly an honor as someone who's worked in the oil and gas profession, uh, industry for a long time now to have on the Texas Railroad Commissioner. How's it going today? It's going great. It's a great time to be in the energy business in Texas, and as somebody who regulates that business around this state, uh, I can tell you that it's as, a, it's, it's as exciting a time as we've seen probably in a generation in Texas right now. No, absolutely. I totally agree with that. So I've got to ask, what made you want to take on this role? What was the kind of the thought process that led you to this journey? And, you know, how was it a hard uh, ladder to climb? Well, it's a, I'll try to give you the short version, but it's somewhat of a, a long story because when anybody makes a decision to go into public office, you, you kind of ask, well, you know, why that? Why, why public service? Was it a career move? Was it about having an impact on the world around you? You know, what things were you drawn to where you thought you could make that impact? So to, to let your audience understand that, I grew up in Texas, in fact, in the Irving area, which is just outside of Dallas. My parents were both school teachers, and in fact, both science school teachers. Dad taught physics, mom taught chemistry, uh, and we would take uh, our, our trips, our camping trips, family vacations were always camping, going outdoors. Uh, I was in the Boy Scouts, so so I had a real uh, appreciation for the world around uh, around us and everything from uh, you know what makes the lights turn on to how did that star get there. You know, mom and dad would answer those questions. So I grew up, uh, went to. Texas A&M and got a mechanical engineering degree and immediately came out and went into the uh, industrial energy space. In fact, my first two companies I worked for were both oil, gas, petrochemical companies. I worked both in the refining side of those businesses and uh, did some exploration and production work for those companies. Well, in 2006, my wife and I uh, by the way, she's also a mechanical engineer from A&M. My wife and I started our own company, and it was – and that company is still around today, actually, uh, even though I'm not the CEO there anymore. Uh, started a company that specialized in technology and engineering services for basically all sorts of companies, mining operations, chemical companies, certainly oil and gas. And the, the niche was providing reliability solutions. So any company who wanted these – you know, multi-million, even billion-dollar facilities to operate without unforeseen downtime would come to Pinnacle to help implement programs uh, to drive those businesses. And we were really blessed. The company took off. Um, I, I understand today the company employs about 700 people. Um, even when I was there two years ago, we were over 500 doing business all over the world. And one thing that that I all I saw constantly as I traveled around the world in, in my own business and as I got more and more engaged in in policy type discussions was a lack of understanding of the energy industry in in public office. I mean, you look around the country, congressmen, senators, uh, state representatives, you name it, 
people that actually have a working knowledge of the energy industry are very absent from public service. And when you couple that with the time that we're in right now, this last 10-year span where U.S. energy is is once again becoming a, a prominent portion of our economic portfolio, and you say, man, why don't we leverage that? In fact, you know, you look at a recent presidential race. You know, Donald Trump talked a lot about doing favorable deals. And where can we leverage our capabilities to, as a nation, compete globally? Well, energy has got to be at the top of that list. And so, you know, four years ago, I started thinking, you know what? If I have the the time and the resources and the knowledge to put into public service, I could make an impact in energy policy in a way that would really uh, pay dividends for generations. And gosh, what a, what a rewarding thing to be involved in. So I uh, started getting involved, and sure enough, three and a half years ago, ran for Texas Railroad Commissioner, uh, won that race, and here I am today. Okay, and since we have a, you know, um, just for the audience, this will play on two podcasts. Obviously, you're listening to the Global Energy Leaders Podcast, and it will also play on the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. So for my Global Energy Leaders Podcast listeners who could be from anywhere from, you know, South Africa to all around the world, kind of explain in a nutshell what, what is your job. Sure. Well, in fact, I'm glad you asked that. One of my, one of my favorite punchlines when I give speeches is talking about the fact that the Texas Railroad Commission does exactly nothing with trains. Right, right. And every, everyone looks at you kind of cross-eyed when you do like, well, uh, really? Yeah. I, the agency was created in 1891 with the initial primary responsibility of regulating railroad rates. Uh, over the next 130 years, the... Uh, the, the responsibilities would transition. Uh, most, in fact, all of the railroad responsibilities would go away. And starting in 1915, the Railroad Commission started getting responsibilities for regulating oil and gas. Today, the Railroad Commission regulates if all oil and gas activities inside the state of Texas and coal mining inside the state of Texas. So if you want to drill an oil well in Texas or a gas well, if you want to build a pipeline in this state, or if you want to start and operate a coal mine in this state, you have to come to the Railroad Commission to get permits to do all those things. And you have to follow the rules or the regulations that we put into place. So my job as a Railroad Commissioner is to run that agency that does that. And when there are contested cases, when someone says, I'd like to drill a you know, disposal well, put a disposal well in, somebody else says, I don't think you should be able to do that because of these issues, that case is contested, and it comes before the railroad commissioner, commissioners to hear that case and make a judgment call, kind of acting like a judge. So those are the two parts of my job. Uh, outside the state of Texas, I have actually heard railroad commissioners referred to as something like the Texas Energy Secretary. Yeah, no, that's a good description. Um, before we got online here, and I want to kind of shift gears just a little bit. You were talking about you know Earth Day up in Dallas. Now I just live outside the Metroplex, and I forgot to attend this event. Kind of tell me what what was going on there, and what did you do there? Well, Earth Day, as everybody I, I'm sure is somewhat familiar, Earth Day is an annual once a, once a year day that that brings our focus back to protecting the environment. And in the energy industry, certainly that is nothing new to us. And, and pro- in fact, any heavy industry, you could be in the chemicals business or the power industry, uh, environmental releases, environmental uh, controls are something that are, are a big part of the way we all do business. And certainly as a regulator, it's a big part of my priorities. Uh, well, the, the big Earth Day events that are held around the country 
they have different focuses. The one in Dallas is unique in two ways. One, in Dallas, the, the people who put that Earth Day on really try to marry economic advancement and commercial development with environmental sensitivity. So you get a real different vibe for most of that Earth Day. It's not a, you know, end all industry and shut down oil and gas event. It is a, hey, we know this, that the, that the people of this state and of this nation are advancing and that we use new technology all the time and that energy and other chemicals are a big part of that. How does that marry with advancements we need to make in terms of protecting the environment and communities and private property rights and everything else? So they take a very mixed kind of all big big tent approach at the Dallas Earth Day. What's also interesting about Dallas Earth Day is it is by far the biggest one in the world. The Dallas Earth Day event literally is bigger than the next biggest one by a factor of 10. I think this year they, they thought something like 150,000 people would attend that Earth Day event, which is really cool. Uh, I went there because as a regulator in Texas and, by the way, as a conservative Republican uh, elected official, there, what is often missed in the, in the broad dialogue is the fact that as a conservative Republican who regulates a very uh, thriving oil and gas industry in this state, people, uh, people assume, oh, you must not be on, you must not take a strong environmental position. And it's because of a lack of knowledge in the general population about how seriously people like me and people in the energy industry take this stuff. And so I go out there to help educate people. Um, I did several events. I did a, a forum on the, on basically safe, uh, oil and gas practices with, with three other people. I did an individual town hall where I just got up and, and spoke and did, you know, spoke for about 15, 20 minutes and answered questions from the audience. Uh, and then one of the really neat things I did is the, the new EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, who's a Trump appointee, came into Earth Day and, and he and I did a town hall style kind of fireside chat where I, I asked questions and he answered and we went back and forth for about 30 minutes. And all of these are designed to, to, to show or to showcase how we are all getting involved in protecting our natural resources for future generations and really try to break down the, the negative political dynamic that seems to dominate uh, the news stories. Well, that, that, I wonder if we'll, uh, we can find that online. Do you know if we can find that online somewhere? I don't know if you can find the videos today. I'm sure the Dallas Earth Day folks are going to sh- are going to have videos of all that stuff available. But if you if you were to, to Google, there are there were news stories all over the place about those uh, those events. I mean, there must have been uh, I don't know 50 different news stories that we saw pop up about the event and different things I was doing there. Okay, great. Well, guys, we will link to that in the show notes, um, whatever we can find, so you can go and check that out. Okay, now, the, the the listeners would riot. I have a huge following in Texas. They would probably riot if I didn't talk enough about Texas. So let's get into Texas. What's going on with oil and gas in Texas? Just kind of give us the, the brief overview of where the industry's at. You've kind of talked already in, in the positive stuff. Where are we at? I've, I'm seeing a lot of articles now. Obviously, the Permians dominate the news. Um, you're seeing some Eagle Ford talk, and I've also noticed some Austin Chalk talk has come back around. Kind of get us up to speed on what's going on. Well, yeah, and it's hard to do that in just a couple of minutes. And, yeah, no and pressure. Really, no pressure for, for people around the world, and, and even in Texas, by the way. Let's 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 talk about the, the last kind of twenty years very briefly to bring us up to what's happening today. So everyone knows in the, in the I say everyone, most people in the energy industry know that up until the early nineteen seventies, uh, when the Middle East oil embargoes hit, 
the state of Texas was one of the most prominent um, forces when it came to global energy prices. In fact, the Railroad Commission was setting allowable levels, which, which, were, which was prorating production around the state. And by doing so, the Railroad Commission basically controlled global oil prices for nearly 50 years, from the mid-1920s until the early 1970s. That's what the Railroad Commission did. Um, well, in the 1970s, when the Middle East oil embargo hit, Railroad Commission raised its allowables to 100%. Basically, market, you produce as much as you want to, and that's when OPEC took over controlling the price of crude oil. And that was all that happened all the way through today. Well, then in the early late 1970s, early 1980s, as the, the glut of oil hit the market uh, and oil prices crashed, and certainly Houston and a lot of Texas was hit very hard in the 80s, um, we, we saw that, that the energy industry basically started a downturn in the beginning of the, the – right around the 1983-84 timeframe. And Texas oil production would go from 3 million barrels a day and over the next you know, nearly 30 years decline constantly uh, until basically about 2005, so, so almost 30 years, about 25 years, and would bottom out right around a million barrels a day. And that's where it sat around 2005, 2006. Well – in the late 2000s, 2007 and 8, a couple of things happened. We all hear about you know, hydraulic fracturing and George Mitchell, but really it was a, it was the combination of slick water um, frack jobs that enabled people to do these multi-stage fracks on a long uh, horizontal that opened up the economics and all these shale developments. Add to that that in the late 2000s, you know, 2007 and 8, we were starting to see 80, 90, 100 dollar oil, and all of a sudden Texas was back in business. So from 2008 to 2014, Texas oil production went from a million barrels a day back up to three million barrels a day. I mean, it was it was like that in the terms of the history of the oil business. Interestingly enough, from 2008 to 2014, that's six and maybe even seven year span if you want to go six months either side of that. Uh, while Texas grew its oil production by two million barrels, Saudi Arabia and Russia combined grew its oil production by two million barrels. So Texas grew its oil production by Saudi Arabia and Russia's uh, growth. Those numbers matched identically almost. So what happened then is, you know, everyone, 2014, OPEC announces, or Saudi announces, it's going to not cut back production anymore. OPEC production maintains across the board, and oil prices begin to drop. They bottomed out, um, I guess now they give about a year and a half ago at about $27 a barrel. And during all that time, what was happening in Texas was, wow, we had, we had, the, the state had really expanded, and oil, oil infrastructure, transportation, jobs, everything had just gone, had skyrocketed. Uh, salaries for kids coming fresh out of college with a petroleum engineering degree got up to like $120,000, $130,000 a year. I mean, it was just, it was just gangbusters. Well, then the low prices hit, and everything would begin a pretty, pretty harsh correction. But in, in the underpinnings of all that were, yes, the, the, United, the state of Texas had built all this infrastructure. When I said the state of Texas, the energy companies here had built all this infrastructure that still is here today. And starting in, over the last then two years, prices and costs began to come under control. Oil companies, energy companies, sharp technology folks and engineers began figuring out how to do more with less. And the costs to produce came down dramatically over the last three years. So then over the last you know, six months, we, we saw at the end of last year the, the agreement between OPEC nations that even brought in Russia and Iran to stabilize oil production, even make some cuts. 
oil prices have come up, and now they're hovering around $50 a barrel. But what's happened here in Texas is because of because the Texans are dealing with this dramatic market shift going from $100 a barrel down to 27 they have really figured out how to curb costs. And so now at $50 a barrel, there's a lot of places in Texas where oil, and that's what oil can produce, can be produced uh, economically. So what's really interesting now is people are going around. If you said you had $100 million to invest in energy, and you said, I want to be in the oil business, and you said, where in the world is the best place to invest? Well, there's always you know, the, the overseas markets where you've got really low lift costs, but you've got to deal with transportation issues. You've got to deal with refining issues. You've got to deal with instability of governments and regulation issues. And so when people look around the world right now, they say, golly, Texas looks like one of the best places in the world to invest in the energy business. And it has been probably 30 years, maybe 40 or 50 since that's been the case. So what's happening as a result of that is Land prices and mineral prices in Texas, especially in the Permian Basin, are the highest they've ever been. Right now, people are purchasing acreage in the Permian Basin for more than they were paying for it when oil was $130 a barrel. Because if you're going to invest, you want to know that you can make cash flow, and Texas is one of the best places in the world to do that. So Texas is now seeing this disproportionately large investment of dollars uh, compared to the rest of the world, because we've got the infrastructure, we've got the refining capacity, we've got the pipeline capacity, uh, we've got roads, we've got engineers, we've got drilling rigs. I mean, you name it, Texas is so well positioned now to take advantage of new demand around the world that we're seeing really pretty big investment, despite the fact that prices are only at $50 a barrel. Absolutely. And, and one other thing that I've noticed is um, you have what's going on in Mexico with their energy renewal policies. Um, so you have that, that, you know, Texas is right there by Mexico. Also, there's new refineries that I've seen, two or three that are on the books to be built in West Texas and South Texas, maybe. Um, there's a new power plant coming on uh, just southeast of Houston that's a, you know, a zero or low emission power plant. There's a lot of activity in Texas that makes it you know, where if you're, you're, if you're doing the Balkan, you've got to take it somewhere and get that, get that oil process. Right here in Texas, we kind of have everything that you need, it seems. That's exactly right. I mean, you, 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 know, you get a barrel of oil out of the ground. That barrel of oil isn't all that useful right there. You've got to send it somewhere. You've got to have it refined. Then you have to send it somewhere else and have it distributed. Then you've got to get it to a gas station, get it in a car, and now it can be used for transportation. So in order to really you – know, you, Let's compare to, say, Venezuela. Yeah, they've got a lot of oil in Venezuela. They've got a lot of production capabilities. The problem is the refining infrastructure is mediocre. They've got to move that oil halfway around the world, either before or after it's refined. Uh, plus, they don't have the, the – because of all of the political upheaval there, a lot of the smartest people in the country when it comes to developing this, a lot of their, their people resources have left the country. So while they may have the reserves, they don't have all the other ingredients required to change that into a usable energy product. And so when you look across that whole portfolio, who has all of these things in ways that are integrated together to make their energy opportunities the biggest? I think you'd have to look long and hard to find somewhere that's even close to Texas. 
And, you, you know, you touched on this uh, just a few minutes ago about the uh, potential for employment here. Um, there's a lot of candidates that live in Texas. You've got a lot of engineering schools and schools that have business degrees and uh, all the all, all this stuff. One of the things that we hear sometimes is we hear, okay, well, I don't really want to get in the oil and gas industry right now because um, it's in a downturn or maybe the prices have leveled out, leveled off for a short time, but, you know, it fluctuates. But what I've tried to push back on is that, you know, in the oil and gas industry, um, in the next five to 10 years is actually probably the best time to get involved because there is this big, great exchange of the older group that's going to be retiring. And then you're going to have a big gap of people that could potentially get in there now, fill those voids, and then have long-term gainful employment inside of the industry. And so uh, Texas has a lot of opportunities outside of just saying, hey, well, there's a, there's a job. We also have the infrastructure to put you in place to you know go to college, to get the degree or trade school or whatever. So there's a lot of facets here. Um, that, that tie into Texas and the oil and gas industry. I do want to transition real quick. Uh, I brought up a second ago to Mexico. What do you think the long-term impact on the Mexicans um, and, and their energy policy renewal that they're doing, how will that affect the Texas oil and gas industry? Well, it depends on what you call long-term. Uh, if you ask me in the next 10 years, I don't think that the Mexican energy reforms are going to have a very prominent impact on Texas. And, and the reason is it is still so expensive to develop offshore energy. So you, let's look at Mexico. Mexico's biggest opportunity today, or the, let me say the biggest ongoing concern or in, tex, in Mexico is their offshore production. And those fields have been not certainly not exhausted, but, but they've seen their best days. And you look onshore in Mexico, you say, well, do they have much in the way of pipelines? No. In fact, they've got something like uh, 10,000 miles of pipeline or 8,000 miles of pipeline and it's basically all there for carrying natural gas to power plants. Well, what about their onshore production, right? I mean, they, the Eagleford stretches down into Mexico. In fact, some people think that the portion of the Eagleford shale uh, formation is actually bigger in Mexico than it is in the state of Texas. So how about that? Well, there's, no, there's very few, almost no one doing anything there right now, and there's very little road and pipeline infrastructure there to capture any of that. Very hard to get that product anywhere. So there's just a, a lot of ingredients that are lacking. Uh, that, so in the short term, do I see you know Mexico putting a lot more production on the market? No, not I, I frankly don't. Their best guess, the best hope, I guess, for them in the short run is that they try to uh, get some foreign investor to come in and, and help revamp some of their offshore production. Uh, but once again, that's a really expensive investment, and there's a lot of places around the world that investors can go to do that, partner with other nations. Now, when you look long, long term, you know, if we go out, say, 50 years, what does the landscape look like? Well, if, if the Mexican government, the Mexican, the country of Mexico plays its cards right, if I was them, for example, what I would do is I would say, I'm going to start investing in infrastructure in the in the area of Mexico where they have the Eagleford where they're, the, the part of the Eagleford comes down into Mexico. So I start putting in roads and gathering facilities and midstream operations, things that make that area more attractive to drillers. And now, or operators, and now what I do is I just kind of yell across the border, hey, we're open for business. Because if you can imagine a, a company that's operating in Texas to move their operations south of the border really isn't all that difficult compared to trying to go to uh, Venezuela or um, you know Africa somewhere or Europe or Russia or Middle East. I mean, right. it's, it's proximity-wise, it's close, but it's still you know a decade away probably before there's enough of that there that we see a big push 
I know some companies are trying it now, and kudos to them for doing that. I think there could be a really great partnership long-term with the Mexican resources and American technology and know-how, but I, I still think that's going to be longer coming than the Mexicans would like it to be. Okay, I'm going to leave you with this, and I'm not asking you to get into the specifics here, but just kind of a general, um, give, give, give the audience some help. We covered a story a few weeks ago where uh, a producer was getting fined, and they had a violation, and they said, well, their contractor did it, and all this. And my, my takeaway was, really, I don't know who was, in, you know, who was in fault and who wasn't, but my takeaway was is that over the past few years, we've seen a, you know, a lot of jobs that have been lost, which means that responsibilities as far as reporting to regulatory agencies may be slipping through the cracks, because uh, all of a sudden, um, Tammy had that job and now Tammy's gone and we think we've covered all of what she did but but we just don't because we you know we, we forget about it um and so that was kind of my takeaway looking at it going okay well I don't know who's in the right and wrong it doesn't really matter but I can see situations in my company or any other company where if you had to go through layoffs all of a sudden all these responsibilities that these employees had you know now they're kind of being dispersed and trying to stay on top of it as companies as we're picking back up we're seeing more activity what guidance would you give companies to make sure hey that they are staying in compliance they are following the rules and they're getting stuff done because as you mentioned at the very beginning of this uh, oil and gas professionals and energy professionals in general, we want to make sure we do stuff right. We want to be safe. We want to do it by the books, and we want to follow the guidelines that are out there for, uh, for us. So what advice would you give to companies saying, okay, hey, guys, here's the best way to make sure that you are um, following our guidelines and you're doing business with us in a proper manner? Uh, well, the first thing I would say just philosophically before we get into the, the how-to, let, let's talk about how we at the Railroad Commission view the world. So there's about 600 or so, uh, 650 maybe now, Railroad Commission employees, and we're we're trying to grow that. We we want to we need to be actually closer to 800 employees, but we've been down quite a bit because as the industry went down, our budgets were constrained, and we weren't able to hire the people that we needed. But one thing I, I like to, to tell people is, look, we are not we're not trying to play a game of gotcha at the Railroad Commission, right? The, the Railroad Commission. I'm an elected, a statewide elected official. So when you say, well, okay, Ryan, that, that you're, you're not appointed by the governor. You don't work for the U.S. government. You work for 27 million Texans. And I say, yes, and guess what? Those Texans want the energy industry to do well in our state. That is in their interest. So when we go out and, and regulate, our approach is, look, we operators who are doing good business, we, don't, we know that not everybody's going to be perfect, and we're not out there trying to gotcha people over paperwork violations. Someone calls us and says, hey, I'm confused about this. I know this thing is late. If they call us up front, let us know what's going on. We work with them almost every time because, once again, get pushing somebody out of business because of paperwork violations is not in their interest. It's not in the Railroad commission's, commission's interest, and it's really not in the people of the state of Texas' interest. So, in general, early on, engage with us. Let us know what you're dealing with, if you've had issues. Now, on the flip side of that, Operators, there are, and it's rare. I mean, I would say less than 1%, but there are some small operators who try to skirt the rules, see what they can get away with, try to save a penny over here by, you know, not doing X, Y, or Z. And my message to those people is eventually that will catch up with you. And, if, and it may not even be the Railroad Commission. You may have an issue where you have a well that you didn't get approval on, didn't do things the right way, and it ends up having some sort of leak. And then it's going to cost you a ton of money. You may go out of business. may cost me a big issue. So we work diligently at the Railroad Commission to help good operators who are doing the right thing stay in operation and continue to flourish. If people are bad operators, that they, they ignore our rules, willfully try to skirt the rules, it's my job to take them out. And by the way, the people who want that the most are other operators. When I go out and right, visit with right. 
people in the energy business, no one wants me to be a an assertive an assertive regulator to people trying to skirt the rules as other operators. And and, that, and once again, that's good for the business. It's good for the people of the state, and it's good for us as an agency. So back to it, your question, what do people do? Call us early. If they're confused about something, hey, I've got to get certain paperwork in. I'm sorry I'm working through this. The website can be frustrating. We've got a lot of data. And certainly look at the commission. We have we have fantastic people who have really good knowledge that, that are passionate, most of them about serving the state. That's at the Railroad Commission. But we also have room to improve. There's no question. We're working today on trying to improve our technology systems, uh, improve how easy it is to get information off our website. Uh, so we're not afraid to admit that, and we're working too. So all that to say, when we engage early and we know that somebody's working on something and we're working together to try to help them get in compliance, make sure they understand what the guidance is and the rules are, usually that works out best for everybody. Yeah, and it kind of sounds like a baseball analogy there. You know, as a batter, you don't care what the strike zone is as long as it's the same for everyone. It kind of sounds like that's kind of how your operators have expressed their you know, their side of it to you is, hey, we, we just want to know if the rules are, are the same for everyone, and that's fair. Um, you want you want the marketplace to be a competitive marketplace that has fair rules for everyone. Look, I know you have to go. You've been so gracious with your time. I could go on for days with this, but we, we know you got to get out of here. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to plug or promote before we let you go? Man, I don't think so. I, you've covered a lot of good stuff. And look, this is part of our job to get out there and, and share with people what's happening. And uh, so if you, if, if your listeners ever have questions, uh, whether it's about the Railroad Commission specifically or just about energy markets, you know, we one of our services we I see as our office providing is that when small producers, uh, especially in Texas, have a question, man, Ryan, where are markets going today or what do you see prices doing? Uh, call us. So we do a lot of research on that. So anyway, my website is just is just www.ryansitton.com. Couldn't be much easier. You can put that in your show notes if you want to. Uh, reach out and connect with us. Uh, we can we send out monthly or or quarterly note of newsletters, just letting people know what the big stories are in the space. And um, once again, we're we're here to help. That's what the people of this state want, and uh, we take that responsibility very seriously. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ryan. We really enjoyed it, and hope to have you on again in the future. Glad to do it. Have a great one, and I'll look forward to coming back. Okay, hope you enjoyed my interview with Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton. Um, also, reminder, I've talked about the job. It will be on my LinkedIn. So if you're not connected with me on LinkedIn, you might not see it. I will post that uh, Monday morning. That will be May the 8th. So be sure to check that out. And until next time, keep climbing.